Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of God to us today. Amen. It's a pleasure to uh, introduce you this morning to Professor Naomi Jacobs, even if it is an introduction only to her story, not she herself. She is a 47-year-old today. She's 47-year-old today, a college instructor in the field of psychology. She's a writer, a speaker, and leads a quiet, happy life outside of London. She is the author of the book, Forgotten Girl, that tells her story. Naomi was badly traumatized as a child. There was physical abuse involved, homelessness. She was raped when she was 12 years old. She turned to drugs of all sorts to ease the emotional pain. She became an addict, and this led her to having psychotic episodes and untreated mental illness. But by her early 20s, she was a single mother of a beautiful young boy named Leo and thought that she had her past fairly well sorted out. Then at the age of 32, one morning back in 2008, she woke up and she was 15 years old again. Or at least she believed she was 15 years old. She had lost 17 years of her life, every single detail. She didn't recognize herself, her house, her family, or even the child that she had given birth to 10 years earlier. She stared into the mirror for days, squeezing her cheeks and crying out, I'm so old, 
I'm so old at 32. She had a rare case of profound disassociate amnesia. All the trauma from her childhood had not gone away. It had simply gone underground. And when it erupted years later, it was a Vesuvius of unresolved, unattended pain that broke her memory. Her sister and her best friend moved in right away, helping Naomi with her 10-year-old son, trying to ground and to calm her, setting up doctor's visits for a grown woman who considered herself still a teenager and wanted mostly to just watch TV and play Xbox because that was the last thing she was doing at 15 years of age. It took eight weeks for her memory to finally return and for her to put the pieces back together. But what helped her the most were her extended diaries. She had kept a daily diary since the time that she was a child. They found these diaries. They supplied them back to her. And she put her life back together by reading the daily entries of who she was. Hers is a truly remarkable story. And I recommend Forgotten Girl, that book, and her story to you. I want to use her story today as a kind of instructive tale. As a parable of sorts. I want you to consider her story as a kind of parable for the church. The greater church that we are all a part of here in North America. In many ways, we live in a traumatized time ourselves. These are not the good old days that we live in. These are strange times. Culture moves quickly. The ground beneath our feet seems squishy at best. We don't really know who we are. And it seems to me that all these years of growing, festering angst has broken out with such force that large parts of the church are having a psychotic episode. (laughs) That they are talking and acting as if they were insane. We have forgotten who we are, and what we are about. Well, fortunately, a diary does exist to jog our memories. And it's just one entry from that diary to which we have turned today. Words written by the Apostle Paul just a couple of decades after Jesus. Words that he borrows almost certainly from one of the first hymns sung by the early church. He uses a song music to soothe the savage beast, to make his point, to call the church back to itself and back to its senses. That seems to be what we need as well. Something old and certain, something melodic, something comforting, something original that will help us recover our identity. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus these days? Is it to be a cultural warrior taking on every person, company, or cause that conflicts with your values, never settling until you have won every holy crusade? I see a lot of that these days. Is it prosperity? Don't worry about inflation or scarcity. God's going to bless you if you bless me first, of course. So send your money right on in and sow your seed. 
And then you can open up your securities account because all the money's just going to flow in. I see that too. Is following Jesus draping yourself in the flag and painting the cross red, white, and blue? And thanks, Ricky. Uh, singing the battle hymn of the Republic and associating eternal faith with temporary empire? I see a lot of that as well. Is being a follower of Jesus a retreat from this troubled world? Just let it all burn. Let's pull away to some neo-monastery of our own making, a wall of pseudo-security and safety built between us and the world. I see a lot of that too. All these prominent ways of living a, quote, Christian life are for a large part adventures in amnesia. We have forgotten who we are and what we are to be about in a world that has put people of faith in a difficult, strange position, we often sell out to power, to politics, to wealth, to fighting for or against people and things that we have no business tangling ourselves up with. Churches across this country are bleeding out people, particularly young, educated people. And when asked why, their answer is almost always the same. The church is, quote, fear-based, self-centered, antagonistic, judgmental, and unfriendly toward those who doubt or toward those who are seekers. The church is unloving. That's from an extensive Barna Group study just released a couple of years ago. We have forgotten these words from Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And now we are getting closer to an answer to that question, what does it mean? To be a follower of Jesus. Don't be selfish. Be humble. Think of others first. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. That's the Christian life right there. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. Now we can complicate it further if we choose. With doctrine. With creeds. With schisms and attempted reformations. But this is the essence of it. Have the same attitude of Jesus. And here with these very words, the complicating does begin. Picking up at verse 6 of Philippians 2, continuing to verse 11, we have again these beautiful words, one of the oldest hymns we think that the Christian church ever sang. And it's all about the loving, sacrificial, descending attitude of Christ. And we have made it a point of theological discussion and dissection instead of Christian formation and practice. We have done what we have always done. We make it more complicated than it is. It's really simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it is simple. But by intentionally complicating things, we get to avoid things. 
Soren Kierkegaard said that this is a consistent practice. Interpreting and applying scripture certainly takes time and education and understanding and practicing out the context. It takes wisdom, absolutely. And there are parts of the Bible that are so culturally separated from us that we will never know really what to do with. However, the ethic of Jesus is quite clear. And we are simply avoiding the practice of Jesus' words by means of just talking about those words. Here's what Kierkegaard says. The matter is quite simple. The Bible can be very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. To ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the truth coming too close. (laughs) And that's what we've been doing with Philippians 2 for centuries. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That's the imperative. That is the point And then Paul picks up the hymn. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus sharing an equality with God doesn't clutch the pearls of his divinity. He doesn't clutch anything. He lets go of everything that might deter him in his mission. His reputation, his rights, his status. He casts it all aside and slides down, 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 and further down still from infinity, landing in the womb of a teenage mother, he now with questionable, scandalous paternity. He lives the life of a poor artisan, He lives the life of a slave. He dies an excruciating death of a criminal. That's how he is treated. And Paul makes the point that no other being could travel such a great distance or sacrifice so much in service to others that that is what gives him the name above all names. No one could be any higher and go any lower. So no one gets to be any higher than Jesus in the end. And thus, we are to have that attitude. Don't hold on to anything that prevents you from loving and serving others. Don't go on and on about what you deserve, about how important you are, about defending and fighting for what is yours. Be willing to get down all the way down. 
in sacrificial service to others. That is the point. But it's a point that cuts a little too close to the bone. So we need to put some distance between us and this call to loving sacrifice. For the first three centuries of the church, the church took Paul at his word. They didn't try to explain this passage. They tried to live it. But then power came along. And there was an opportunity to become the religion of the land, the favored faith of the empire, and the church went for it. And once power, holding power and keeping power becomes your ambition, passages like this one really get in the way. Give up. Let go. Be a servant. Pour yourself out. Empty yourself. This will never do. And so over the course, a little church history here, over the course of seven worldwide church councils in 500 years, leaders of the church got together to debate this single passage and the meaning of Jesus as both God and human. And they came up with this. It's called the hypostatic union. Quote, that Jesus Christ is of two natures, one human, one divine, one divine, united with neither confusion nor division. And to their credit, all of Christianity agrees with this theological conclusion. But Paul wasn't talking about this at all. He wasn't trying to explain how Jesus was God. And those before us successfully took an organic erupting song of worship and converted it into a doctrinal statement. Through theological debate, they convoluted the purpose of the text altogether. They proved Kierkegaard tragically true. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. It really doesn't matter how Jesus became God because there is no explanation for such a thing in the first place. But it is crystal clear here what Jesus did and the example he provides and the path that he calls all of us to travel. Was Jesus a cultural warrior? No. Was Jesus a violent revolutionary? No. Was Jesus a retreatist? No. Was Jesus motivated by fear? No. Was Jesus greedy and driven by money? No. Was Jesus obsessed with power, making or forcing others to do as he wanted them to do? No. That's not who he was. That's not how he thought of himself. That was not his attitude. On the contrary, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was shaped by this same Jesus of Nazareth, quote, Jesus came with unarmed truth and unconditional love. Not to kill, not to harm, not to take, not to prove, not to acquire, not to gain. In Jesus there was, there is, and in unselfishness, a drive to serve, a sacrificial motivation at his core. 
And we who bear his name would do well not to forget that. For we must bear that same quality. The essence of being like Jesus is consistently an emptying, a surrendering, a life of loving service to others. So Paul isn't telling the Philippians here what they should believe. He is giving them instructions on how to live, on how to treat other people. Now watch this, you'll know it's true. Did you know that you can be completely orthodox in all of your Christian beliefs and still be a jerk? Yes. You can believe the Bible, read a little bit of it every morning, say your prayers and give money to the church or to Congolese missionaries and still treat people around you as if they are beneath you. To paraphrase Paul from another of his famous letters, you could learn to speak all the languages that are found in earth and heaven, but if you don't love others, you're just a loud, obnoxious noise. If you understood all the mysteries of God, and you possessed all knowledge, and if you had faith so as to move mountains, but didn't love others, you are nothing. If you gave everything you have to the poor, and even if you sacrifice your body, if you don't love others, it gains you nothing. Yes, God emptying God's self is a beautiful mystery. It is one worth thinking about, worth meditating on, how the essence and nature and substance and infinity of God could be crammed into and held within the limitations of a human being. But this is not something to be explained. It is an example to be lived. If you are gathering with a group of people to study the Bible, but the study of the Bible is for information only, please set aside the pretense. You're not studying the Bible, you're in a book club. If you have a prayer group, that gets together consistently, but mainly out of routine, or to sanction or stay informed on the latest gossip, just meet at a coffee shop. If you come to a church building on a weekly basis, and your burning theological desire is to be told how right you are, stop going to church and go to seminary instead. They'll tell you everything that's right. My point is that all of our religious rituals, all of our spiritual practices, when it gets down to it, we are confronted with a choice. You ready for it? Do we want to talk about Jesus or do we want to learn to live like Jesus? Because that's what it comes down to. And we hear a lot about Jesus, but when you put your shoulder to that wheel to live like Jesus, well, that's, that's a whole other adventure. Do we gather to reinforce how right we are? Do we gather to learn to relinquish some of those rights 
so that we can serve others better. There's a question that circulates in therapy circles, and I really like this question. Here it is. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? I want you to think about that a second, okay? Now, occasionally, these two things do come together. Occasionally. You can be right, and you can be happy, but think about your relationships, What happens if you are the one who is always trying to prove that you are right? What happens if you're the one that always has to be right? You have to win every argument. You have to prove to your spouse, your child, your work associates that they are wrong. You're going to end up being a very lonely, unloved person. Letting go of that need to be right all the time. To be able to change your mind. Then you are choosing happiness. Then you are choosing love, peace of mind over just having to be right. Then you're taking on a much more humble attitude. And yes, I know this can be misunderstood, and I'll hear about it afterwards. But stay with me for just a minute more. What if the church asked a variation of this question? Do we want to be right? Have the right teachings, the right theology, the right orthodoxy, the right social issues? Or do we want to be more loving? And I know the passage in Ephesians 4 about speaking the truth in love and they shouldn't be separated. I know that verse. I'm just asking you to stop and think a moment. Could it be that in our effort to be right all the time, we have shirked our main responsibility, which is to love all the time? Because we have a real difficult time putting those two together. I'll tell you. It is easier to be right than to be loving. It is easier to be more knowledgeable than to be more humble and to be of service. It is easier to read and study than it is to put into practice. It is easier to stay clean and unsullied than to get into the muddy and the gray areas of life. It is easier to keep your seat than to descend, to go low, to get down in it, to humble yourself, to love. And yet we have no choice. We must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who came not to prove that he was right, but to love and to serve. 